My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello and welcome everybody. You're listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast, where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history, one story at a time. I'm your host, Cami Ahrens, curator at the Foxfire Museum. This month, in honor of the upcoming Veterans Holiday, we're taking a look at stories from those who have served in different capacities and in different wars. There are many different interviews within the Foxfire archives from veterans. So we are just scratching the surface today, but we are going to just listen to some clips from different individuals who participated in different conflicts. These stories in their totality are gripping and moving and deep and raw, and we are grateful to the interviewees for opening up and sharing their experiences with Foxfire. These interviews were conducted in 1967, 1994, 2003, and 2014. Many of these interviews were published in Foxfire 12, which has a really great chapter on the world wars. Some of these were only published in magazines. If you're interested in learning more about these individuals, please head to our website on our blog where we'll have links to more information about each of them and where you can read their full stories. For the sake of this podcast, we've abbreviated their experiences just so that we can get a snapshot of the resiliency of the human spirit. A little bit of history about Veterans Day. The holiday started as an informal acknowledgement of Armistice Day um, in honor of the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, which ended the First World War on November 11th, 1918. Unfortunately, as we all know, not too long after the treaty was agreed upon, the world entered another global conflict. And after that, we see a succession of wars that drastically altered modern technology and global culture. Again, while these conflicts are hard to hear about, difficult to imagine, they certainly illuminate the ways in which that we as people seek to still find good in all of the bad. So I encourage you to, again, investigate these stories further or look into other stories within your own communities, within your own families, as we honor our veterans this month. The first interview that we're gonna listen to, again, was conducted in 1967. This was with World War I vet Harley Penland. Harley is a soft-spoken elderly man who gently opened up his memories from serving during World War I overseas in France. Were you in World War I? Yes, ma'am. We went, went across the water in 1914. Uh, <coughs> it was cold. I made sure we're never gonna find no land. I didn't believe there's no land on there. Stayed on we stayed on the water seventeen days and nights. The ship was named President Grant. It got blowed up before I got back to the States. Hmm. What what countries were you in when you were over there? 
uh, in breast brands, and then they moved us down to St. Nazelle, that was closer to the firing line, and boy, they had the soldiers there every week, or two weeks, they killed them so fast that they load up, they had a train that run up to the front. Were y'all drafted, or did you volunteer? Drafted? Yeah. I never volunteered to go to <laughs> No, sirree. Some stayed over there. Most of them out where they wanted to go to. Some stayed over there. But I had my bag ready to get on the first things coming. We had to wear boots there in France all the time. Through the winter, no rubber boots, hip boots. You'd come on up here and hang them in your belt. But where I was, I kept mine rolled down and folded down about there. I didn't. I wasn't out for the. I was at the shipyard all the time. Unloading heavy stuff. Was that your uh, job when you were there? Yes, ma'am. I stayed there. First went to the hospital in breast branch and then stayed there till I got better. Do, do you think that they were prejudiced at all about black people, the people in France? No. No. They treat them all about the same over there. I heard it would before I got there, but I didn't believe it. Mm. <laughs> but they had to treat them all the same. Why didn't you believe it? I just didn't believe it. See, I was raised here. Yeah. This used to be a tough country, you know. We'll now listen to an interview with Teeny Howell. Teeny's the only woman featured in this podcast. And she served at a time when women weren't allowed into conflict. So she served as a nurse during World War II. Um, as she mentions, both she and her husband were in the military, serving in different capacities, both in very different spaces. She served at a hospital in Italy during German attacks. When I finished nursing school, I, I went in uh, service, that was World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, they needed nurses so bad, and I was in Oran, Africa, and then went on to Italy, and we ran, we moved our hospital, as the troops moved, we moved our hospital. Right. And I, I was over there two and a half years. So, I, um, I, and I, you know, I can't say I enjoyed it, but I'm glad I went. Uh, it was an, quite an experience. But I was young then, you know, yeah. 21 years old. Wow, you were young. <laughs> I, I, I got married while I was uh, uh, lost in general in Atlanta. I had been going with my husband for two years. And he was he was in the service. He was drafted, and he was down at Fort Benning. So now, what was he in the Navy or the No, he army? was in the Army. army. Yeah. Army. And he was in the Signal Corps. And he was uh, coding and decoding secret and confidential messages. He had a very interesting job. Anyway, we got into Naples. 
and they didn't really have a place for us, and they put us in these bombed-out buildings. And so we didn't get our, uh, our stuff until, oh, let's see, we were there two nights uh, that we were there without any uh, supplies, really, you know. We didn't get our, our um, bow packs or anything. We were just there, stranded. And I remember these these two um, these two officers, they told us, said, now if that, anything happened, y'all stick together and get in these foxholes. We got uh, separated, and I, I had a hand of one of them. <laughs> and she was scared to death, and she, she said, I can't get in there. I said, Jenny, you can too. So I was pulling her, and we crawled in, and I got in on a black fellow. Uh, what we thought was, well, it was the Germans were bombing the fort. But our AKAC guns were up on the mountain shooting at the Germans. And I thought it was the Germans shooting at us. No, that was my experience of getting there. And then we finally, they finally did give us a place to put up our, our cots and everything. And then, and then we didn't set up our hospital. We went out of Naples up on the mountain and took over a hospital, an Italian hospital. But it was hard. Working, you know, I mean, you were tired all the time. Uh, and you worked from 12 hours, and if you could, you got a, a uh, maybe an hour off during the day, and 12 hours at night if you worked night duty, so. Did you, um, you took over an Italian hospital? Yes, uh-huh. So it was like actually like a building and everything? They had moved their patients out, and we took it over. I don't know what they did with their patients, but they, anyway. Uh, it had Mussolini's name up on the up there, and it had been chiseled off because you know he was we went with the Germans, so um, it was a big hospital, and um, they dropped a bomb right out of the uh, at the gate. See, we had Red Crosses all over, and they weren't supposed to bomb. Uh, Red Cross. Uh -huh. um, but they did drop one outside the gate one night, and if we had an air raid, we had to get out in the hall and uh, and get our patients out there too if we could, you know, against the wall. <clears throat> and the worst part of it, of it too was in the daytime the Germans strafed and that was just, they would fly over our hospital and you could see the pilots sitting in there and they would shoot these guns up. They were look, they were shooting at the supplies going to the front, you know. And some of it was ammunition and and just general supplies for the troops. And they would go right up that road and they would uh, and strafe and they'd shoot and they'd just out of these planes very low. Mm -hmm. And uh, they never did hit the hospital though, but they fly over our hospital. So that was very frightening. <laughs> I remember <clears throat> the first time they did that. We, we had my helmet. I we used to take a bath out of it, you know, if we didn't have a, a, a shower or anything. So I was taking a sponge bath after my helmet, and they flew over. <laughs> I was pouring water out and putting my helmet. <laughs> Everything was all wet. Yeah. So. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> some of it is funny, and it, some of it was very sad. So. But I think about all this now, how much publicity and everything they've gotten from this 
uh, you know, worn out and even Vietnam, that Vietnam was terrible. But in World War Two, veterans were not, they didn't, you know, they didn't get any publicity much when they came home. Now, I belong to uh, uh, this building in Washington, D.C. It's for women who are in service. And I don't know how I got an application to join, but I did join it. And I haven't been able to go to Washington to see the building, but uh, it's for all women who are in service. This next interview comes from Colonel Ben Purcell. His extensive interview recounts his experience as a prisoner of war with the Viet Cong for five and a half years. Again, his interview is published in a Foxfire magazine. He and his wife also wrote a book together. So this is a very, very short (laughs) clip compared to the interview that the students conducted with him. If you close your eyes, you can almost see yourself walking alongside him in the jungle which provides us with a better sense of just the weight of his experiences. Um, And yet here he can share this experience two decades later in 1994 with the Foxfire students so that they might might learn from his. That would help interview with Ben Purcell, October 23rd, 1993. I was shot down in a cemetery just east of Quang Tree City in South Vietnam on the 8th of February, 1968. On um, March the 28th of 1993, a group of Americans went to Quang Tree and we asked for permission to go to the cemetery. We knew the village where it was near, but we didn't know where the cemetery was. So we asked around through an interpreter and he found this man who was 80 years old and he remembered the crash. He said, I went out to the crash the day after it occurred, and right here is where it was, and he showed me where the aircraft hit and where I was taken as a prisoner in, in 1968. I spent more than uh, 62 months as a prisoner, and 58 of those months I was in solitary confinement. In other words, I didn't have anybody to talk to during those periods of time. Mm-hmm. Well, initially I was shot down as a passenger on a helicopter. There were six Americans. Uh, all of us got out of the helicopter, but the chopper had caught fire in the air. I mean, it was burning when we crash landed. And the other passenger, who was a young enlisted man, came through the burning helicopter to recover his rifle to pick it up to bring with it. And his clothing caught fire, and he was burned severely about the face and the head, face and arms. And the pilot, one of the pilots, had been hit with a bullet you know, out of the burst of gunfire that actually caught the plane on fire. And we put a bandage on his leg, but we couldn't do anything for the man who was burned. We tried to cross that sandy cemetery we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And as we got into the tree line, we found ourselves in that hamlet where the people were children, everybody else playing and working. So we jumped in a hole trying to protect ourselves from the enemy who was following us by this time. They had gone to the burning helicopter and saw our tracks as they went across the Sandy Cemetery. And so they were following us. And, you know, we didn't want them to shoot us in the back, so we jumped in a a big crater which had been made by a bomb or an artillery shell. 
and turned to face them and pointed our guns at them. And they came circled halfway around the bunkers or the crater and pointed their guns at us. And there were 12 of them. And there were initially only six of us, and then the two men who were wounded climbed out of the hole and hid. We hoped, you know, they'd get away. So then there were only four of us facing 12, and we didn't have a chance, so we gave up. They tied us up very strong. They took our boots from us, took us everything, took everything from us that was worth anything. You know, rings, billfolds, watches, photographs. And then they took our boots and used the strings out of the boots to tie our thumbs together behind our backs. And then another heavier rope above, above our elbows so it wouldn't slip down. And one man held a gun in our back and another in a rope and we marched out across the rice paddy. Went a ways and had to get on a boat to go down the river ways. And uh, we got on the boat. And the young soldier who was burned happened to be on the boat with me. And he said, uh, Colonel, are you a Christian? And I said, yes. He said, well, let us pray. And so we had a prayer there right after our capture. Soon we went down the river and got out and started walking and walked all night. And the next morning we were heading into the mountains and the young soldier said, I can't see to walk because my eyes are swollen shut from the burns. Very painful. And so they told him to sit down by the trail and before we kept moving, we had another prayer with him and, and moved on out of the way. You know, the gun at her back, we had to keep walking. Soon I heard a pistol go off and I said, Lord, they've executed him. I didn't want to accept the, that, but common sense told me that's what happened. They realized that he was would never survive in the jungle. Anyway, uh, they took us on for five more days walking in the jungle. They untied us the second day so that we no longer had the hands tied behind us. We climbed up the mountain and climbed down. Walking barefooted, our feet became blistered so we couldn't stand on them hardly. We'd climb up the hills on our hands and knees and slide down on our rear ends. It was rainy, overcast, planes overhead, but they couldn't see us because of the terrible weather. What did you eat? They gave us boiled rice and a little bit of water on the trail. Mm -hmm. And then on the 13th of February we got into a cabin that wasn't as big as this room. And uh, I had broken ribs from the crash and blistered feet from the walking barefooted. And I was cold and I was hungry. And I was quite despondent because of my situation, which was natural. And all of a sudden, I remembered it was my 40th birthday. I don't know if you've ever heard the adage that life begins at 40, but I'm sure you have. <laughs> and I said, Lord, I just soon stay 39. If the life's going to be anything like this, I don't want to live. Sometime later, they they uh, told me supper was ready. Now, as I mentioned, I only had boiled rice and water up till this time. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't see what the man was offering me, but while I was out, the hen laid an egg, and they had picked up that egg and had scrambled it for me and handed it to me. And I couldn't see it in the darkness of the cabin, but I remembered his words. He said, it's a custom of the Vietnamese people to remember the special days in, lives of, in the lives of guests in their home. Though you're not a guest in this man's home, he knows it's your birthday, and he wants to honor it with the only thing he has to offer. Here's an egg for your supper. 
there I was, 12,000 miles from home, poles apart. Just as opposite from that man as any other person in the world. And yet he showed me a bit of humanity that I can almost feel tonight. On the 12th day of March, 73, just two weeks before I was released on the 27th, they brought in packages from the American Red Cross and they were addressed to each prisoner by name. And mine was addressed to Colonel Ben Purcell. When, when I said man's most precious possession, second only to life, is freedom. And that day, 32 of us regained our freedom and a chance to start life anew and hopefully find a place to serve us. And finally, we're going to listen to James Jobbett, who was interviewed in 2013 um, about his experiences fighting in Iraq. This is 18th of September, uh, Thursday, uh, with James Jahabit, Brianna Finley, and Corey Lovell, and Thomas Fountain. I, I served in the Navy in, uh, in Iraq <laughs> two years in with, with recon, but I was technically still part of the Navy, but uh, I mainly just Iraq. They didn't really, once you were in one theater of the war, one part of the war, they pretty much kept you there until it was over. Do you have any specific training that was doing to you? Uh, in the Navy-related, it was uh, like in, uh, mainly uh, automotive-related, but it was all large, like the, the engine, which is basically a large diesel repair. Uh, machinist made boiler tech stuff like that Re and then recon which was diving parachuting weapons training stuff like that so for me I was able to find that I was blessed to be alive after the whole f the, a total of about three three and a half years give or take in a combat zone to understand it How had the uh, war changed you and Raven County? I, well, I didn't see it as much when I left, but getting coming back, I, I see that we were that the county itself was really a tight knit community, and everyone and pra everyone practically knew everyone. As far as growing up and all, uh, I, there's there were a lot of either re retire people that retired or other veterans that call Raven County home so I like to think that we all contributed to the change of the county but as far as in the in a positive direction uh, how it affected me uh, uh, I like to think it was on a positive note uh, there's a lot of a lot of things I had to deal with mentally when I got back this yanking so this well I hate to make it sound like that it was bad but it really they did it the, the military did it the, as nice as possible but it, the this for time for the lack of time sakes it's it, it's like somebody reaching and yanking you out of a combat zone and dropping you into a, a peaceful community and expecting you to adjust overnight 
when something like that takes some time to r refer back to. What do you miss most about Raven County? The, I think Raven County and the surrounding counties are, were, were really uh, rural areas and which we're able to be a really tight knit community. There's every, like when I was growing up, there's there, I I don't think I've ever gotten a ticket when I was in high school. Only 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 because every police officer knew my dad. They would see me speeding, and I, before I got home, my dad was cold. I didn't even have a chance to tell him that I got that I was speeding. So I just think it's the the tight knit close community that that which I guess it helped helped me with a lot of things in life that's the one thing that I missed the most when I went overseas is that everyone knowing everyone and everyone actually caring for each other so in the in the military it felt like a blink of an eye it, it went by really quick uh, to tell you the truth five years felt like five minutes they they just you're just continuously physically moving and your mind's trying to play catch up the whole time so you're just everything feels like a flash but it it it, it was fun I I got to meet a lot of new people got to see a lot of different cultures honestly it it varied from day to day uh, like I said earlier we were we were there to uh, have a war on a group of terrorists, but also at the same time being a peacekeeping force for the local population because we're practically doing operations in their backyard pretty much and to be able to move around freely, we had to keep them staying there, pretty much have to stay in their good grace as well. We didn't know the I get. I guess I keep saying terrorists, but to, to pretty much root out our the the enemy at the time, and then again this September 11th happened. So we were there. Just like every war, we were all the country was really gun ho about it at first. Which personally, I I'm not so eager to jump into a fight without knowing what I'm fighting for. But then again, I was one of those patriotic people, and I just went and enlisted right off the bat. So the the funniest thing is, we actually had two small puppies that we actually brought into the to the base. It was hilarious because every every day they got they we all ate MREs, and they got they got their own little MREs. This little three year old puppy, and <laughs> it was just hilarious. <laughs> When we went over, it, we our lives pretty much got put on pause. But everyone, everything at uh, back at home pretty much kept going and changing. And so when you get home, even something as short as three years, there's a uh, huge gap from where you left it three uh, three years earlier. So honestly, I don't think you fully readjust back to civilian life. So although this was just a, a brief look at some veteran stories within the Foxfire archives, I hope it presents you with 
a sense of understanding of how global conflicts still impact small towns and how it impacts those individuals especially. And I hope that, again, you can share stories with the veterans in your life, whether they're in your community or in your family, and help to celebrate them this month as we, again, recognize Veterans Day. If you'd like to read more about veteran stories, please check out Foxfire 12, which has a chapter on the world wars. There are other individuals listed throughout the Foxfire books who do share their experiences. You know, since most of the interviews conducted in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s would have been with men who were of age during World War I and World War II for the drafts, there are a considerable number of experiences captured within the Foxfire books. Again, some of the interviews specifically are only in the magazines, and that is Ben Purcell and James Jobbett. And those references will be listed on our website. Thank you for joining us this month. We appreciate you listening and taking a dive into our archives with us. Remember that we are a 501c3 nonprofit. We do rely on your generous support to keep our projects going. If you're interested in supporting us this giving season, please visit our website for more information on ways that you can support Foxfire, whether it's through a donation, through a membership, purchasing a book or another product that we have to sell. All of that goes back to supporting our mission to preserve and promote Southern Appalachian history and especially to engage youth within their communities and cultural traditions. We will be back at you next month with the final podcast of the year. Hard to believe already we're nearing the end of 2022. We hope you all have a very safe and happy holiday this November season, and we will be back with you again in December. Y'all take care. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>